Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey and today I am here with a special conversation between Business of Software's Mark Littlewood and FE International's Thomas Smale as they discuss setting up your business for a successful sale. The Business of Software Podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. FE International works with founders and business owners to value, exit plan and ultimately sell their businesses on the best terms. FE uses hundreds of thousands of internal data points accumulated from over a decade of successful exits to market and position businesses to the right buyers from day one. Happy listening. Um, I'm joined today by Thomas Smale. Um, Many of you will know him. He is the founder and now CEO uh, of FE International. Uh, They sell companies for entrepreneurs to people that want to buy them. Um, Welcome, Thomas. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you after so many years. It's really lovely to see you. Um, And uh, I, I... so pleased that you've kind of settled down and found a place to actually live. Um, I have, which is no longer on a plane, which is is nice. Yes, uh, really nice to really nice to see. You. I wanted to talk to you today about um, how entrepreneurs can think about setting up their business and themselves, uh, which I think is another uh, really important aspect of this um, for a sale um, and the. I think we'll certainly be editing this bit but um so we're going to talk today about setting a business up for a sale and i think there's two things that uh, we want to think about there one is how do you maximize the value uh, of the business but uh, also as an entrepreneur um, how do you prepare yourself and there are two very important um, pieces of that thomas give us a little bit about uh, you uh, and your background for those that don't know yeah, so I've I founded FE in 2010. So we've been in business coming up for coming up for 12 years now. Um, in that time, we've represented over 1,200 founders who have successfully exited their business. Um, and in that time, we've worked on transactions from hundred thousand dollars up to a hundred million dollars. The, the majority of our deals are like somewhere in the the middle of that. Um, and we have also, I mean, I think the topic of this podcast is a good one because. We often spend many years speaking with people before they ever exit. Um, speaking to someone literally this morning before I jumped on this call, and he first got in contact with us in 2014. So we're eight years on. Um, so we are kind of like there for a lot of the like founder journey throughout the process. Um, but essentially, all we do is M&A. So we sell businesses outright. That's our main service. We don't really offer anything else. If a founder or like groups of founders, or maybe sometimes a CEO want to exit their business, they'll come to us. We'll help them figure out what it's worth. Off the back of that, we'll figure out, should they be selling now? Should they be selling sometime in the future? Uh, and then if they engage us for our service, we'll prepare the business for sale. We'll find buyers or multiple bidders, and then we'll negotiate a deal all the way through to cash in the bank. Got you. Um, and I think there's there are some people that will say, oh, I never want to sell my business. But people will always have to exit a business at some point. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is that the things that make a business an attractive proposition for a buyer are also often things that make a business a very attractive business to run. Um, The the, the, the kind of core fundamentals, the, the metrics that you think about and focus on are the ones that generate the most revenue and also for entrepreneurs free them up and give them a little bit more time to think about the stuff that they uh, always think about um, when you were talking to your entrepreneur in 2014 uh, what was the what was the situation what was the state of play what were they doing so i think they were as with most people we work with i think a lot of people think people sell their business when there's like a major problem or saying blows up or explodes a lot of a lot of time it's literally just they've been happily running their business which is what was happening in 2014 um in this case 
uh, the email I got today was because he had had an email from a buyer, as many people do, or potential buyer, who said, hey, I want to buy your business. And then it turned out they were complete time wasters. They either didn't have the money. I, I don't know the full circumstances, but essentially didn't have the money or the deal didn't go ahead. But that had kind of piqued the founder's interest in the sale. Um, so they reached out to us, which is often a, a very common reason come to us. people come to us in the first place. Um, but to your, to your point, and when I do presentations, is actually one of my first slides is everyone has to exit their business at some stage. So even if you're, you don't necessarily want to kind of sell it tomorrow, that's fine. But you should still be thinking about things to put in place to make it sellable when it does come to it. Because you just never know what might change in your personal life, professional life, business life, what other opportunities might come along. Um, so it always makes sense to prepare, even if you're not necessarily going to sell tomorrow. Yeah. So in the first, let's say, for the sake of argument, first five years of the life of a business, generally the entrepreneur isn't thinking about selling, they're thinking about building a uh, a business uh, and then you know, at some point in the in the entrepreneurial journey they may start um thinking about it if you're talking to someone who's starting up a business what are the things that you ask or suggest people do or, or suggest people think about uh, right from the get-go even when like selling selling the company is the last thing on the mind so the first thing, because I, I get this question a lot, the first thing I say to people is don't even think about selling. The number one, like whatever happens, if you're going to sell your business, the, the primary thing buyers are going to care about, regardless of strategic, private equity, individuals, they're going to care about your traction and how big your business is generally from a revenue perspective. So the very first thing you need to do is actually build a business that, that makes money. There are many things. I could send you a checklist of 100 things that would be great to prepare before you sell. But ultimately, if you're not making any money, you can check 100 things off that list and your business is still worth essentially zero. Or you can have a business which is making, I don't know, seven or eight figures a year and check almost nothing off on the list and you're still going to have a sellable business. So I think early on, not necessarily a mistake that people make, but I think people early on when they're starting often get distracted with things that don't really matter in the big picture. Like your number one priority should be making enough money to kind of keep your lights on, pay your rent, pay your staff, pay yourself, um, reinvest into marketing, whatever you might need to do to grow the business. The things you need to do to then think about selling the business should really come down the line once you have some, some, some traction. But, but really, it's kind of focus on revenue growth. There's almost nothing I can tell you that you should definitely be doing on day one in, in every business, because a lot of the time I could say, for example, one of the common things we would say is make sure your code is well documented, but ch chances are the, the code you write on day one of your business is going to end up being complete junk and you're going to get rid of it in a few years anyway. So yes, hypothetically, you should be kind of documenting as you go through, but the reality is you don't really need to do that at all. You should just focus on building a good product that makes money. Building a product that makes money, this is very 1990 before Venture Capital arrived and uh, the world the world changed. Um, but uh, yeah, remarkably underrated. And I, I know a lot of our uh, listeners will relate to the, the, the concept of, of um, generating cash from code. For, for sure. I mean, I think... As, uh, years ago, if you asked me this question 10 years ago when I thought I was really smart, I would have given you a much more technical technical answer and I would have given you, I would have said, Mark, you know what, I'm going to send your listeners a, a checklist they all have to like complete before we I ever speak to them. But the reality is that's not actually the important thing. You just have to build something that, that makes money. And that is, I'd say, my caveat there is I'm working on the assumption you want to build a sustainable business that has a high likelihood of sale. If you want to go raise venture capital and you want to burn cash, Yes, there are many businesses where that makes sense, but it's not really something that I'm good at or know about. Interesting. Um, and I suppose over that time, there have been a lot of new forms of finance as well for bootstrappers or self-funded businesses or whatever's the, whatever's the nice, good way of describing people that aren't venture funded. I still say bootstrappers, but I, I think, I'm sure there's probably a, 
a new trendy term that I should be I using. I think to... all these, I don't know what it is, but uh, if you find that, ping me. Um, it, uh, uh, I think things like revenue financing are becoming increasingly um, popular and, and um, available. Uh, we've uh, had, uh, I'm sure you've come across them, Capchase as a, uh, an organisation have launched in Europe. Um, yep. And, you know, plenty of other uh, organisations like that that are uh, around and about that are uh, finding those businesses that have got cash flow um, that uh, they can they can lend against. And that's a, that's an, an attractive way of um, growing without going down that venture, uh, that venture route. For, for sure. I definitely think there's compared to, say, 10 years ago, there are definitely more options to grow, which are not raise a series a or like a seed round and give away a bunch of equity or fund it yourself with your like life savings or some money you've begged borrowed or stolen from family and friends yeah so business is going along it's growing nicely one of the things that typically drive a founder to think about an exit in, in, and you've seen this across a huge number of companies so you've got some pretty good aggregated anecdote as as well as data yeah i mean lots firstly lots of different reasons i would say some the, the most common i'd say like the one i like to think it is but in reality it isn't really but the most common one is they have reached the level they wanted their business to get to to achieve certain personal professional goals i wouldn't necessarily say everybody has a number I think by number, I mean like an amount you need to sell yes. for to be happy and never have to work again. I think theoretically, that's what a lot of people have. Um, but I think a lot of people get to a stage where, and that number will really vary. It could be their business is now worth a million, or it's worth 10 million, 20 million, 50 million. And that's the level at which they want to sell. And they're then happy to move on. They probably think they're going to retire and never work again. The reality is almost everyone stays in the industry either as a investor or a mentor or coach or whatever it might be. I, I think I've met very few clients who have completely vanished and never done anything after a successful exit. Um, so that's one. I'd say a lot of people also get there because of pushes in their personal life. It might be um, maybe their kids are going to college in the US and they need a bunch of money to pay for their college. Maybe they've just had their first child and they want to spend more time kind of at home with their family um maybe it's the opposite maybe they have older kids and the kids have just left home and they want to go travel with their other half um lot, lot, and lots and lots of professional reasons sometimes it's it's health uh, particularly as founders get older i'd say it's reasonably common for people to say like i can't can't work 60 hours a week anymore or yeah. i have a health issue i can't travel anymore so i want out um from a professional perspective probably the most common uh, ultimately is they have grown the business as much as they physically can, either with their own ability or their own desire. So often it's, we sell a lot of businesses which are, let's say on average around a million dollars valuation. And often they don't go above that because it's just a solo founder working by themselves. And the, to get to the next level, they know they need to hire people and they really hate the idea of hiring and managing people, which is a completely different Ultimately, it's a completely different challenge from writing code or doing marketing or whatever, completely different level of responsibility. So a lot of people hit a some sort of barrier, either yeah. real or not, which means that the business is now as big as they can possibly get it, and it makes sense to sell. Uh, and then probably the, the other two most common ones are they have another opportunity that they could be spending their time on instead, which they think they're either more interested in or they think could be bigger doesn't mean the business they have now is bad but the opportunity elsewhere might be bigger better more interesting more exciting whatever that might be um and then i kind of touched on this one already but probably one of the most common catalysts for physically contacting us is a buyer has reached out privately there are lots of buyers out there who reach out to you privately to buy but very very few of them are actually ever going to go anywhere the vast majority are just time wasters they either won't have the money or they're trying to get access to proprietary information or whatever it might be. Um, and then often people reach out to us like, hey, I had an approach. I wasn't interested before, but now I am. What can we yeah. do? Now I, I started looking at the yachts in the catalogue and uh, yeah, that one looks quite nice. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So there's 
lots of reasons, but I'd say they're probably like the most common ones we see. And then lots, lots in between, or sometimes a combination. Like I know to grow this business, I need to work more, but personally, I now have three kids. I want to spend time with my kids, not, not yeah. work more. There's a bit of a paradox here, isn't there? In the uh, one of the reasons, which I think is very common, is this founder is burnt out and they don't want to work sixty hours a week and constantly be thinking about the business. At that point, it's harder to sell the business than if the founder's working twenty hours a week. Um, so. Is there an argument to say that you know when people start thinking about um, selling their business, uh, one of the things they really should be doing is thinking about how they spend less time in it and make that happen? Because unless they're going to go with the business in the sale, the fact that they're working really long hours to make something happen is, is potentially um, an alarm bell for an acquirer. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely true. And it is often a challenge. So what sometimes we find people do is they will just, they'll say, oh, I need to be working 60 hours a week to maintain our current growth rate. I can actually work 10 hours a week and just maintain the business where it is. I'd say that's, that's very common to see. So often you might see a, it's hard to do it about that. You'll see a revenue graph that kind of goes like this and starts yeah. to flatten out. And there's actually direct correlation with the amount of time they've been spending and ultimately they haven't been able to or haven't even tried to hire someone to replace themselves or automate their role or whatever it might be. Um, I, I would say in the current market, and this is not necessarily supposed to be a sales pitch, but in the current market, there are definitely acquirers out there compared to five, 10 years ago who are willing to take over from a full-time operator. I think the, the thing we now consider that we didn't really think about in the past because buyers have definitely evolved and the market's got more competitive for buyers is buyers will just consider what it's going to cost to replace that founder. So they yeah. might say, okay, they're working 60 hours a week. We can hire a manager for 150,000 a year. So all we're going to do is in the net income or EBITDA that's been presented to us, we're just going to add in a salary line for replacement cost. And, and that's the way, that's the way they get, get around it. Um, but no, a lot of founders do get to that stage where they start to burn out. Mm. I would say it probably makes more sense to sell while you're on that upwards trajectory and not cut back your hours rather than cut back your hours and have a business which isn't growing as much because the buyer pool is going to be not necessarily different, but I'd say maybe less optimistic about future growth. Because the most obvious conclusion in that case is, regardless of whether you're telling the truth or not, is that the business has no more growth potential and it's kind of hit a hit a peak or there's some sort of problem that would be almost impossible to figure out pre-sale that the founder knows and they're just not clearly disclosing. So it's definitely a different dynamic from five, 10 years ago where you would have had to reduce your hours. The business would have to be quite passive. You had far less acquirers out there who were willing to get creative. Now there's probably anecdotally five times as many buyers looking at every active business we have which means instead of just having like two or three offers you might have we had 11 recently on a eight-figure SaaS business in that case the founder was in that case it was two founders could essentially name their terms they were like yeah. this is what we want and they had a laundry list of things that you would you would in a in a um situation where there's only one or two bidders you the bidders would have laughed at them and said there's literally no way are we giving you they'd negotiated all sorts of things like i want you to pay my personal credit card bill for the month of close think things like that which are completely ludicrous in a non-competitive situation um yeah. but I'd say founders are definitely like spoiled in the current market at least there's lots of options without necessarily having to cut back hours even though theoretically in that checklist i would have sent you years ago of 10 things you should do cutting down your hours is it's still a it's still an important variable the, the less you work the better from an exit perspective yeah so let's talk about two slightly different scenarios that kind of gather those uh, reasons for selling um together and one of them is a slightly longer term thing it might be that the founder's burning out or the kids are going to leave college and they want to travel with them or you can see that you want 
to make a change and have an exit from the business in some kind of time frame. It's generally not, I've got to do this in the next six weeks. Um, it's probably a, a one, two, three year process. And then the other thing I'd, I'd really like to talk about is that someone comes to the founder with an offer to buy and it's very attractive, but it's kind of on a burning piece of paper and they really need to act very quickly. Let's talk about the, the more planned option first. When founder gets to that point where they're thinking about exploring the options and, and uh, thinking about a sale, what are, the, what are the most important things that they should be thinking about? So I think the first thing I always say to everybody, the first thing you need to do is establish what you're actually trying to achieve. So and that's, that's where the personal and professional will usually overlap. So it's establishing what do you want to achieve from generally a value perspective and a timing perspective? Because a couple of examples, you have a business today worth a million dollars and you want to sell it for $20 million dollars. Um, and you want to sell in, in a year, my advice there is it's probably not very realistic you're going to get to that level. Or founder two has a business currently worth $15 million um, and they want to sell it for $20 million and they're willing to wait three years. Chances are in, in that example, that founder doesn't really need to do anything that I tell them. They just need to continue running their business as they have been. And assuming it's growing like at all, they're probably going to get to that $20 million valuation so establishing expectations and like where you are right now so we've offered people free valuations for years and it's not necessarily that we think they're going to sell straight away it's that we know that it's important for people to understand where they are right now so they can get to a stage in future where when they do want to sell their expectations are quite realistic so the first thing you have to do is establish what you're trying to achieve because from there what you have to do could be completely different so going from that 1 million to 20 million, you probably throw away every exit planning advice I could possibly give you. You need to be figuring out how to make more money and how to grow your business. Ultimately, that's how you're going to get there. If you're at 15 and you need to get to 20, there are probably some more specific things you need to do. So probably the most, like half of our team, about half our team are accountants, essentially part of what we call our audit team, um, which is essentially a mini audit that you would get from any sort of financial services firm if, if you had to go through that, that kind of process. I would say almost every business we see has inaccurate financials provided by the founder. And that's generally, generally not malicious. It's usually just there are errors. So we will spot that up front before we list a business, we make sure it's sorted. But probably one of the most important things founders can do before they sell is make sure their accounting is in good order. I think almost every business owner I know has at least a couple of line items on their PL or their balance sheet that have been like sat there for years. And it's like, oh yeah, we'll we'll close out that direct loan account. Or yeah, there's that 20k. We're not entirely sure where it went. We'll um we'll we'll figure it out at some point. And their accountant has just kind of deferred it or done whatever for years. Fixing things like that are important. And the main reason that's important is not because a buyer cares about 20k. But it's because if there's discrepancies, your $15 million valuation could actually be 10 if you've overstated things by uh, say a third in that case or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, so it is important to get your books in good order because that means the valuation we give you up front is only as accurate as your numbers are at the time. The valuation we give before listing is once we've gone through an audit process, and that could change if your numbers are inaccurate. So number one is always financials. So most business owners think their financials are in reasonably good order, but there's always some sort of discrepancy in there that will come up. Um, the second one, longer term, um, I think- With all of the businesses that you've worked with, what percentage of them, when you've put them through that process, find you find what percentage of those valuations go down and what percentage of them go up? if any? Um, I would say anecdotally, probably 25% go down, 25% go up, about 50% say proximately where they are. 
the 25% go up usually because the business has grown during the audit process. It's very uncommon for someone to have understated re revenue is one thing that's very hard to get wrong, like yeah. a higher or lower, because it's kind of you export from Stripe or PayPal or Braintree, whatever you're using, and a hundred thousand is a hundred thousand. Costs tend to be a, a lot different. We do add backs. So when we we adjust financials, so if the owner has discretionary expenses they've been paying, uh, for example, like they've been paying for a, uh, a car for business, which is actually really their personal car, but they've been expensing it, we'll, we'll remove that from the financials. So it may well be that numbers are slightly more attractive. But the most common reason for a valuation increase between valuation and audit is just the business has been consistently growing yeah. rather than they've been overstating costs. I would say almost no one does that. Um, Reasonable number of businesses will decline. I would say of all the businesses we represent by business model, SaaS is probably the best. SaaS sellers tend to be, not necessarily say the most sophisticated. I'll insult my e-commerce friends, but tend to be like quite organized and diligent. I think because of the nature of technical founders tend to be quite organized in their general thinking. Yeah, yeah. And maybe they're a bit more paranoid about kind of, sticking to the letter of the law with accounting, whereas a lot of, a lot of people in other industries maybe are a little bit less concerned about it. Um, so in those cases, we do have less discrepancies with SaaS founders. I'd say generally though, the majority end up around about what they originally told us. Firstly, because we're really good at picking up on errors up front. If we think someone is sketchy or giving us like incorrect answers we'll just refuse to value it we'll just say look mm. we're not the right company to help you there are plenty of like marketplaces out there or brokers MA firms who are desperate for business go, go work with them like like yeah work with you um and also often if it's just a small amount plus or minus either way we, we always build in um a bit of a margin for error in our valuation anyway so generally, if it's like plus or minus 5% in either direction, yeah. we don't make a change to the valuation. Um, but yeah, al almost everyone has some discrepancies in their financials. As to whether or not they're material, I'd say in SaaS, that's like relatively less common um, because it's usually going to be something we can pick up on up front because they're like, oh, we want to... Uh, add back all of our development spend for the last year because we just built out this new feature which is now done we can make a pretty good argument up front whether or not we agree with that or whether we don't yeah yeah so getting the financials sorted and getting a, i suppose that's a you know a benchmark price a benchmark valuation um let's say what are the what are the things if you're working with someone long term what what are the things that you think they should do once they've done that to move towards a successful sale in a 18 month two year time frame what are the what are the things that you see that are the the best drivers of valuation there apart from massive revenue growth of course which yeah, I think the main one really depends on like how far away they are from their actual goal. If they're like very close, then I would defer to kind of my generic checklist of things, which would be uh, making sure all day-to-day -day tasks in the business are well documented, making sure kind of, I don't know, if you have kind of Dropbox folders or whatever you might use, making sure they're well organized so you can kind of access everything. That, and that's beyond just financials that's anything operational and then when it comes to code making sure that's really well documented whether you're writing the code yourself maybe you have a third party whatever that might be um important at that stage to start thinking about assuming you're very close to a sale start thinking about making sure you own the ip outright it, it's quite common and I, this is why i say maybe slightly facetious saying you shouldn't listen to me at all when you start we see a reasonable number of founders who, when they start out, they've kind of used freelancers and they've used like no written agreement or anything. So even though they've paid them, they don't necessarily have proof they own the IP. Um, and if you're selling to a private equity firm who's about to write you a kind of check for $20 million, you can be pretty confident they're going to want to be very clear that you own the IP. 
Um, Having all of those, that kind of like basic documentation in place is um, essential. And we have a reasonable number of deals which get delayed slightly during due diligence because it turns out they used a freelancer seven years ago and they don't have that kind of IP allocation or whatever it might be. There are lots of different ways. So how do you do. actually, how do you approach that as a, as a challenge? If it comes up, what does the, what does the founder do? Well, so usually they're going to have to reach out to whoever they used before and they're going to have to do whatever they can to get them to sign the agreement. I would say in general, at least in my experience is the vast majority of people, if you reach out to them and you explain like, Hey, this work for me. I paid you. Can you sign this? Most people actually sign it. You would actually think, or at least I would think that people would be more awkward about it. And they'd be like, hey, pay me like $10,000 and I'll sign it. But actually, I think most I was people- I going to say, are, I hope they're not listening to this because uh, if I'd done some freelance work for someone 10 years ago and then someone comes knocking and says, can you just sign this? There's a reason, right? No, yeah. But I think most of the time, look, we just say to founders, like, be honest, like you have the relationship with them. Yeah. Like, hey, you did some work like we know we own the ip but it's a bit ambiguous would you mind signing this um whether they have to pay them a little bit extra or whatever or their hourly rate or pay for a legal review ultimately things like that are way easier if you've got them done at the time because reaching out seven years later is tough if it's yeah. a year later relatively easier um there are and this is very much going down the rabbit hole there are legal things we can do if you don't necessarily have everything signed perfectly as part of the transaction to still make sure it goes ahead. Um, but that's, I guess, slightly more complex legal work. Uh, and it's a headache you don't really, you don't really want if you can avoid it by just getting things signed properly yeah. um, in the first place. But I know what it's like when I started my business, I would have had literally no clue. I would have just paid people for whatever. And as long as they did the work, I wouldn't yeah. even think about it. And yeah. mo- most people are the, are the same um but i say documentation overall for your entire business is very important it's gonna firstly make you look very organized when it comes to answering questions so if you're doing q a with a buyer in real time and while we it's our, our job is to make sure you're well prepared if you at least have access to those answers because everything's well documented it's going to make your life much easier so you know your metrics if they're like oh how many how many people have you employed over the years? And a lot of people we work with can just like export a spreadsheet of like, hey, here's all the people employed. Here's when they started. Here's when they left. If at all, here's what we paid them. If you can answer that, I think you create a lot of confidence with buyers if you're very organized yourself in your answers. People are more likely to believe that you're not hiding anything if you could be very transparent. If you're like, I saw a business recently where, they had some employees that had been with the business for 20 or 30 years and they had no employment agreements or anything with them, but they've been with the business for literally ever. So in that case, that can be a little bit more kind of sensitive the way you need to um, approach it. And some people just kind of like forgot like, Oh, I don't know. Like I think I hired people in the past, but I don't have access to that bank account anymore to see who I, who I paid. Um, so real makes to say like the more organized you can be, that's just going to help in general. And that's with your code documentation, accounting documentation, metrics, traffic. If I see you selling a product on a, a SaaS product on a marketplace, like Shopify marketplace or Atlassian or something like that, you kept track of your rankings and reviews over time. Things like that are all helpful as well. Right. Um, so audits, Benchmarks, documentation, getting that stuff lined up. Anything anything else before you start going through this process? I mean, is there another big burning thing? or I'd say it depends a lot on the business. I mean, that's, again, not trying to turn it into a sales pitch. This is why we encourage people to talk to us early because there will always be something. Are there generic things that everyone should do? Probably not. And almost everything you should prepare that a perfect business will have all of these things already. There's nothing, there's almost nothing specific for a sale you have to prepare that your business shouldn't have anyway as part of like perfect day-to-day operations. But everyone who runs a business knows that there's no such thing as perfect day-to-day operations. Even the best looking business or the highest growth business 
will have problems or issues that you can't necessarily see from the outside. Yeah, yeah. So in the old days, there was this kind of thing about um, intentionality. And if you wanted to be sold by a company, sell your company, you would intentionally go off and get in front of the company that you were likely to sell to and you'd take stands and trade shows and things like that and get bigger and bigger stands. And it was all quite a uh, game. I think the, the, the SaaS world is quite different because it's much more metrics driven or it feels much more metrics um, driven. When you, you've got your, your paperwork and you've got your kind of fundamentals sorted, what are the things people could think about, should think about in terms of getting noticed by acquirers? Yeah, so I think the first thing is you need to run a competitive process. I think gone are the days where your only chance of an exit were finding a strategic buyer. Like you say, there's like the only people that are going to buy me are like Apple, Microsoft, or IBM. Like, yes, those acquisitions do still happen, but the vast majority of at least acquisitions we see are private equity firms who have raised 100 million, 500 million that you never would have heard of the average person would have no clue who they are, yeah. but there's at least one thing I've learned coming from a kind of small town in the UK without really any money is there's a vast amount of capital out there that I still can't really comprehend personally. Yeah. There's a huge amount of money out there that just exists that will feel seemingly anonymous in private equity firms. Um, and ultimately that they want to buy software businesses, SaaS businesses, anything in that space, has only got more popular over the last 10 years. And it's only going to continue to get more popular, particularly as if you think about like the average founder having an exit uh, in say 2021, and then the average founder having an exit in 2001 from any business, there's a higher percentage of people selling software businesses. And those people, when they sell, they go launch a fund or they go do whatever. So their money all ends up back in the space to buy more businesses which just grows the ecosystem. So years ago, you like you say, you would have had to go to those three acquirers. They were the only ones that want to acquire you. Now it's all about how much of a competitive process you run, which is really like one of the things I guess we sell ourselves on mm. is, yes, you yourself may be able to get one or two buyers to the table and you may like the one or two buyers you've met. Maybe you met them at a conference. Um, maybe they reached out to you years ago and they've been politely following up. But ultimately as a business owner and this is not necessarily legally true if it's just your own business but if you have yeah. at least i think if you have a team or like business partners like your responsibility is maximizing value from a from a potential sale so running a competitive process is important and that means strategic buyers um that means kind of financial institutional buyers in the process that means a range of other buyers who might also be interested you can't just run a process where you go to three buyers or you might end up with just one offer and it, you have no idea if that's the best offer you can possibly get. Um, so one of the things we do is try and get multiple bids. We almost always do get multiple bids every time. So at least from a founder's perspective, they know. I was speaking to a client last night and he, he has five offers on his business. It's a mid seven figure business. Slightly not actually in the software space, but has lots of overlap with the software space. And the conversation I had with him was along the lines of, I think the market has given him very clear consensus what his business is worth because the five offers were all actually similar in overall value, but the structures were all quite different. So what he was really deciding is which buyer did he like the most and what deal structure did he like the most rather than, I don't know, four buyers offering 5 million and one's offering 12. Like obviously you take 12. In his case, it was choosing between like 4.6, 5.2, So it really just comes down to terms. So yeah, it's definitely different from before. Like you don't just have a few options, like you have to sell strategic, you can sell to a buyer, like a financial buyer. And I definitely don't think it's, I think private equity, at least particularly coming from the UK, I think it got a bad reputation where people think that what private equity firms do are buy a business, fire the whole team and like quadruple prices and screw over all the customers. I think the reality is there's a lot of sophisticated private equity money out there where the, mm. the GPs running that fund have a background running software businesses themselves. 
and they know what they're going to do. Yes, they might raise prices. I'd say almost no one in the software space is buying businesses and firing half the team. That's not really a playbook we see very often and also not really a buyer that our clients would want to work with mm. anyway. Um, so yeah, lo- lots of options. I think Priority gets a bit of a bad name, but often they're the best buyers. They have capital. They need to deploy it. Strategic acquirers may have capital, but they don't necessarily have to deploy it acquiring businesses. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think the private equity space is increasingly sophisticated in, in Europe, has been for a little while, actually. But uh, yeah. Um, so things to watch out for. You you have a you're going through a process. You start this, you start this process. <clears throat> um you can run it yourself or you can work with um someone like 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 you guys and and uh, there are obviously advantages to working with someone that really knows a market and knows an activity very well and knows that knows that process what what typically is the the journey for a a founder from an entrepreneur as they're going through that okay thomas here's the thing we're ready to go shop it um in terms of i'm not quite sure i understand the question do you mean what goes through the mindset of the founder when they hire us or what goes through no less less about that more about uh, what can they expect when they're going through that process because you're taking the company you've got the documents you send it out to a bunch of right yeah so acquirers what, what they can expect so once we've gone through our audit process, which everyone hates because it's audit, I don't think I've ever met anyone, even auditors who enjoy auditing. Um, you, you get through that process and then we have a legitimate business that's ready to go out. We then run a multi-step process where we reach out to like I said, strategic buyers, um, financial buyers, and everyone in between that we think will want to buy a business like yours. Um, one thing we do, which is a bit different from a lot of advisory firms is early conversations with acquirers we do basically all of that ourselves a lot of sellers hire us because they want to use us to save some time for themselves and their time is valuable so we do a lot of like what i'd call like pre-vetting where we have an introductory call with buyers before we ever put them in contact with a potential seller and then throughout the depending on the size of the business we generally run um what we describe as a fixed bid process so usually let's say it's a $20 $20 million business, we might say um, the first bid deadline is in four weeks. Um, and then the second bid deadline, as in the final bid, is 10 days after that. And the reason we do that is because big, sophisticated buyers, given the chance, will drag out processes yeah. literally forever. So in that time, we say, hey, look, the deadline is uh, the end of the month. Um, you've got until the end of the month. If you want to have a call with the founder, um, now's the time to do it because if you come in in two weeks at the end of the month we would have agreed to deal with someone else so we start that that process the founder will expect to have multiple calls with buyers in that time by the end of the first bid deadline we expect to have multiple offers that could be like three would be relatively low and then like i said recently we had 11 i've seen more than that but generally they'll be unqualified so people who don't have the money but 11 qualified bids is quite a lot. And then we go through a process from there where it's kind of negotiating with generally the three that the seller likes the most. And it's not always necessarily the highest offer. It's sometimes the best terms. Sometimes um, we find founders who actually want to go work for the acquirer, particularly in bigger transactions. Like sometimes they say, actually, I do want a job. Others want the complete opposite. The vast majority of founders we work with just want out of the business. So they'll often go with the bidder who's offering the shortest transition period. Um, we'll do all of that negotiating. So as a founder, you're not really, there's not really any kind of exciting drama when you're doing live negotiations over a con- conference table in, per- in person. All the negotiations go through us. So I guess we have that excitement. And often negotiations on bigger, more complex deals are in person um, or over the phone or whatever that might be. Lots of back and forth. Um, hopefully then we get terms agreed, which are outlined in a letter of intent, which basically just outlines the offer with the, the terms. 
And then there's a pre-agreed due diligence period, depending on the complexity of the business, could be anywhere from a week to 60 days. Um, I'd say, and the average is somewhere in the middle of that. We'll go through that process. The better your documentation is, to my point earlier, the quicker that process is going to be. And then hopefully we get to the end. We simultaneously are negotiating uh, generally a purchase agreement. So most businesses are sold as asset sales. So that's negotiated generally, again, depending on the complexity of the transaction, usually there are lawyers in, or attorneys involved on both sides of the transaction. We help facilitate that. Hopefully th those terms are in line with what was agreed upfront, but sometimes there might be edits based on what's come up in due diligence. So for example, if you don't have all of your freelancers in the past having signed IP assignment, maybe there'll be some sort of kind of hold back in the purchase agreement to protect yeah. the, the buyer against those like claims in the, the future. And then we go from there through to close. And then depending on the deal, there's almost always some payments in, in future. Um, so essentially we then act as your, not debt collector, but it's our job to then make sure that you get paid for all of the yeah. future payments, which becomes a little bit of an accounting and a kind of legal function. Um, and also for us, like we, we build, ultimately for me to build a sustainable business that's going to be around for a hundred years, we need people coming back. So I want buyers to do well and equally I want sellers to do well. So even if they're not founding another business, maybe they're funding the next generation of founders who will eventually want to come back and work with us. So we're very much involved all the way through that process. Interesting. So, I mean, for the types of companies that you're selling, the sales process is actually pretty quick. I would say compared to what people would expect, it's, yeah. it's quick. One thing we're really good at, we have a very efficient process. Um, we hit the ground running. We don't mess around. Um, there are some times where we short, set shorter bid deadlines. Mm. Um, sometimes we set slightly longer bid deadlines. It's quite common for us to do shorter deadlines if a founder's been approached themselves. Often yeah. they'll come to us when that negotiations have stalled because buyers will call your bluff and say, well, we're the only offer you have. And they know that buyers are not, buyers are very sophisticated. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They're aware that you're only bitter if they've approached you privately. Sellers will then often hire us and we then reach out and be like, hey, you're not the only bidder anymore. If you want to make a good offer, now's your time to do it. And majority of the time they'll continue to call our bluff and someone else ends up buying the business for for more but sometimes we will run that shorter process because founders won't want to say no to kind of bird in the hand they'd yeah. rather kind of get a deal done or sometimes more complex businesses require a little bit more time or other times to be honest there are things that just affect timing like for example in the us you've got thanksgiving if you're expecting partners at a private equity firm to be signing a term sheet on thanksgiving it's not happening and exactly the same in Europe, if you're expecting a Swedish client to sign something on kind of the 26th of December, that is never happening yeah. either. So yeah. we, we kind of sometimes have or to- Or the entire summer or Easter or- it, it, Exactly, like cultural holidays, religious holidays, whatever it might be, there's quite often things that might change that timeline, but assuming it's full working weeks, you can almost always get the best offer for a business within a four week process. If it takes oh. six months, your outreach, quite frankly, has not been good enough and not been aggressive enough. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, well, we've covered a huge amount. And I, I mean, I, yeah, loads of, loads of things to think about there. And, uh, you know, might be worth actually having another uh, conversation about this another, another time and, and, and digging into some of this in a little bit more um detail but uh, thomas i think some some really interesting insight um there this i'm surprised on some levels because this doesn't 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 seem as complicated as uh, some people have made uh, it out to be um you know yes there are there are important things you've got to do but uh, it's great that founders are in a position at the moment um, to to have options when they're selling into a, um, a market. And, and maybe next time we could uh, have a conversation about what sellers sellers buy, what they value, what they um, are interested in acquiring and, and how they look at businesses. Because uh, I think that's the kind of the other 
side of this. For, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. I mean, you, you've been in this industry, well, longer than me, but we've both been, well, in, in software terms for a very long time. Um, things have changed a lot in the last 10 years, like the landscape for buyers mm. and sellers is completely different. Um, and I, I guess ultimately what I think my job is to do, much like being a very good teacher, our job is to turn what really is a very complex process into something that is as simple as possible for the clients we work with. If you try to run a process yourself, I'm not going to lie and say it's easy because it is very complex. The people yeah. I'm fortunate that have decided to come work at FE um, for me and, and with me are very smart and they're very good at what they do. Um, and I wouldn't be able to even pretend to be able to do half of their jobs half as well as they can. So it is a very complex process still, but we, I guess, at least at a high level, have simplified it to maximize success rate and make it mm. as easy as possible for founders who hire us. And ultimately, that's what part of what you're paying us for. If you could yeah, do it yourself, you don't need to pay us. Okay, just so one one final thing. Um, where do you see the um, acquisition landscape developing over the next five years? I think it will can, can so the the trend of founders and more and more people selling software businesses and then launching their own funds or incubators or launching more businesses is not going to slow down like as kind of more people become technologically savvy that's that trend that trend is not going to change in 50 years time it will be probably almost everyone launching a business will be something online whatever it might look like then so that that's not going to change um i'm not an economist but i definitely think there are people talking about the market beginning to slow down just in terms of kind of those top end multiples, which mm. we don't really see anyway. Like a lot of the businesses we sell are rational sellers, rational buyers. The prices are generally what I would consider or valuations are quite reasonable. We're definitely not bubble. We're not selling businesses for 200 times revenue. Um, so I still think lots and lots of opportunities I think if you were previously at that top end of the market where you were raising kind of at a billion dollar valuation when you'd like just launched your product, then I think those founders might be in for a bit of a shock in the next few years. But if you focus on your product, it, surely all you need to do is open your MacBook and uh, spark up the presentation. Uh, well, I certainly wish it was that easy. Um, but I'd say anyone who's built like a, a good sustainable business regardless of what happens with macroeconomic conditions, there's still going to be acquirers out there looking to acquire business. And there's only going to be more of them. Maybe terms will change. I don't have a crystal ball. If I tried to guess, I would probably be wrong anyway. But um, that, the opportunities are definitely still going to exist. Fantastic. Well, that's great to, great to hear. And um, yeah, we'll certainly come back and check on that in um, five years. I have a sneaking suspicion that the more founders that sell and discover that they want to keep doing something the more investors there will be in the market that kind of at that kind of level so uh, yeah exciting exciting thomas thank you so much and thank you for um supporting our first uh, european in-person event as well in uh, in cambridge in april it was uh, really great to see your um your team there and uh, good luck with everything that's everything that's going on and uh, really look forward to bumping into you soon um where can people get hold of you? Uh, yeah, best way to find it, if you go on the feinternational.com website, um, tons of resources. If you don't want to talk to us and you just want to read about valuations, there's content. If you want to get in contact with us, you absolutely can. Happy to put together a free valuation. Um, I'm pretty active on almost all uh, social media channels like Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. I haven't quite ventured onto TikTok or anything like that yet, but um, oh, I was going to ask yeah. you to do a dance. Uh, uh, you would, you would definitely not want to see that, and I would not be invited back again. But um, <laughs> all of those channels are a good way to find me. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.